Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. I am excited to bring this topic to your attention. It's a brand new film by by Valentin Turn um, called 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate? And this film deals with one of the most important topics that we could possibly discuss on Go Green Radio, and that is how will we feed the world when the population of the Earth reaches what is projected to be actually a conservative estimate of the mid-century Earth's population of 10 billion people. And Valentin has made an incredibly thoughtful and articulate film that deals with this topic, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Valentin, and congratulations on your new film. Thank you. Well, you began the film discussing some of the important questions that you set out to answer as you began your trip around the world to investigate the future of our food supply. And I'd like for you to share with our listeners what those questions are that you your film sets out to answer. Well, the, the situation is, uh, is critical where uh, um, uh, the population is still growing. We have like a little bit more than 7 billion right now and we will have, uh, as you said, 10 billion by the mid of this century. But the agricultural surface, meanwhile, is not growing. It will almost stay the same because we have no more reserves left. We can... Uh, clear some forests here or there, but there are not many left. Uh, and in the same time, cities, mega cities are growing in, in the middle of, uh, of fertile agricultural land. So in the end, uh, the, the surface is not growing, but the population is growing. And this is uh, where I started to ask um, very different people, what is, what is your solution? And uh, well, they're coming up with very different solutions. Mm-hmm. They certainly are. And your film does an incredible job of showing a variety of potential solutions. But before we dive into some of those, I'd like for you to help us understand the current status of food disparity around the world. I mean, let alone what it will be like when there are three billion more of us. But what is the current status of, of our food distribution? Well, the worst is that we have uh, about one billion of people really starving. They are uh, living in hunger and they they skip a meal uh, per week or even several um, per week. So this is is the most uh, awful situation. Another billion is malnutritioned. So they have enough calories, but uh, vitamins and other things are lacking. And in the same time, on the other side of the world, we have like two billion people uh, suffering from obesity, so they have too much. Uh, and, uh, this is the, the 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 bad situation we have right now. Because in total, the, the the quantity of food would be would be enough to feed everybody easily. Uh, because uh, we are throwing away like uh, one third of the world's harvest. So we actually we would grow enough for twelve billion already now. Wow, that's that's really hard to put our, our, you know, wrap our heads around because it is unthinkable that people are starving or malnutritious 
in a world where there is enough. Um, that that's a real distribution crisis. Yes, exactly. Now, early in the film, you point out that there are ten companies that own three quarters of the world's seed market. Help us understand why that is significant. Well, this is already shrinking now. It's even less. Uh, it's just it's changing every year because of all these mergers. Now the last one is Bayer and Monsanto, and. Uh, I can explain you with one simple example. When we came to Malawi, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, in Africa. Uh, we found out that uh, the farmers that used to, to, to sell their seed, they, they have own seeds, they improve it and sell it to other farmers. The government uh, does not allow anymore to, that the farmers sell their seeds. They are uh, obliged to buy corporate seed. So this is the thing that happens when you have big agricultural uh, monopolies. They are um, influencing government policies uh, in, to an extent. I mean, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, and you only can buy corporate seed. That means being the farmers need to be dependent on what uh, uh, corporations sell them. They 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 always had the possibility to. Uh, uh, to produce their own uh, means, and now they they have to 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 take money in their hands to buy it. So this this is this is the main thing that is is bad. There's, an, uh, there's other things that 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 maybe are not. The world is not black and white. That maybe are helpful in some other parts of the world, but for the developing countries, I fear this is bad news. Well, and it reminds me of the. You know the economic crisis that the world suffered in 2008, and in America there was a lot of talk about banks that were too big to fail, because the the fortunes of millions of Americans were tied to the sovereignty or the uh, you know the 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 health of those banks. But if you've got just a handful of companies with most of the seeds in the world, that seems to create the same sort of too big to fail scenario with those companies. And that's really frightening um, that our, our world's food supply could be that fragile and that dependent upon so few. Now, you visited Bayer and you interviewed the chairman of Bayer Crop Science. He mentioned that he believes that innovation is needed to feed the world. And I'm interested in knowing what kinds of innovation uh, Bayer is working on and how those innovations might impact the world's food supply. Well, they're um, up to now genetic engineering or not, they are producing, if they are um, doing research on new seeds, it's, it's seeds for the, the rich countries. Because uh, what they are doing is uh, creating for the farmers a possibility to that they don't use so much workforce. In the industrialized world, the workforce is the most expensive and if you reduce that, it's good for the farmers. But what would be important for um, to feed the whole world would be to improve the yields, to raise the yields. And uh, with genetic engineering, at least, this didn't happen so far. Um, so um, it's, the, the, the thing is that this, these corporations are not uh, welfare institutions. They're going where the market is. So, And when the market, is, market says, okay, the first thing is workforce and not yield, 
they're doing what the market is asking them. So we would need, uh, for, for real solutions, we probably need uh, research that is not guided by, by multinationals, but guided by, by governments or, or other forces that are not commercial. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about what you just revealed there is that if they are working for products that are best suited to developed countries, that that perpetuates the chain of those countries creating the food that's exported to other countries that are developing or industrialized, but still maybe second world in terms of their economic uh, performance, and that creates dependency on outside forces for food. And and your, your film does a lot um, to talk about some of the jeopardy that can put some of these folks in developing countries into. And, and even the, the chairman of Bear Crop Science said that he said in the Western world, there's no sense of urgency about the looming food shortage because people are more concerned about obesity. And he even said that he felt like that could lead to a, a global war for food. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Valentin. What did you think about that? <laughs> well, uh, when I heard him, I thought, oh, he's always, he's almost uh, 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 like a green, talking like a green piece. But uh, actually, <laughs> I think what he's doing, he uses fear for his own commercial purposes. I, 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 I think the the analysis is not wrong. We have we have this uh, uh, this difference, but the, the a war on food. Uh, what, what happens? It's it's. I don't think there will be a war on food. The hungry are too weak to start a war. But what happened in the last uh, in the last decades was where when, when their bread prices were rising, there were. Uh, riots breaking out in in the big cities, like in in the the Arab Spring, the Arab Rebellion started in Cairo with rising bread prices. But this was not shortage uh, or, or, or bad harvest. This was speculation creating this rising prices. Well, and that's that leads us to a really interesting question because you spent some time talking about speculation and and the market that drives not the, the market in terms of who's buying the food but but the commodities market and I'd love for you to educate our listeners on what you discovered about the impact that that speculation has on food prices um, and, and you did go into Arab Spring and how that was all created through the commodities markets help us understand that well, the, the the commodities markets are uh, originally they were really like uh, uh, you had a good harvest, too much of of let's say corn, the prices were dropping, a signal to the farmers produce less, and then when uh, uh, there was a, a shortage, uh, prices were rising, a signal to the farmers please produce more. This is how a stock exchange should work and this is how they, 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 they don't work anymore because they have all these uh, derivatives, all these these options. Uh, that means papers that are, uh, it's rather a bet. If, you, if, you, if you're speculating there, it's a bet. I'm betting the price of wheat will be like this in about 11 months and somebody else is betting against you. So the money is, is not ending up in agriculture. It's ending up uh, with those who speculate. And the thing is, the prices are, uh, and this happens only in the last like five to 10 years when these new papers, these new derivatives have been invented. The prices are volatile. 
in an extent that they never were before. The, the, in 2008 and 2011, already two times, prices were tripling on the grain markets. And uh, for us, it's not a big deal because our bread price consists mainly of, uh, of uh, energy and, and wages. Uh, but in Africa, it's different. There, it's really the, 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 the wheat, which is the main portion of the bread price. And if the wheat is tripling, the bread price there will double or triple as well. And this creates real problems uh, when the price being made in Chicago uh, is just being uh, produced by speculation. Well, and I think that what's so interesting, and you did a great job of showing this in the film, is that all of this money that's being made, and you mentioned this, is not going to the farmers. Farmers, you know, it's a tough job, and it's tough to continue making a living as a farmer, because a lot of that money that's changing hands in the speculation uh, component of the commodities market isn't filtering down to the farmers themselves. It's going to the folks who are speculating and the folks who are trading on the the stock exchange. Um, And so I think, you know, whereas common sense would tell us that farmers make a profit on, you know, what they're able to sell. And considering there are so many hungry people in the world, it it should be an endless opportunity for them to, to make a good enough wage in order to continue doing what they're doing. But because of this middle man or middle you know market of the commodities exchange that is not always the case and that's that's something that's really technical and financial and economic but it's important for us to understand when we're looking at um, an equitable fair uh, dispersion of our food supply we've got yeah, to take and we're creating our own mi- migrational uh, uh, forces uh, with Absolutely. our own system of financing Absolutely. And when we come back, we're going to take a quick commercial break now, but when we come back, we have so much more to unpack with this brand new film that Valentin has created called 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today, our guest is Valentin Turn, and he is a filmmaker who has just released a brand new film that I highly recommend. It's called 10 Billion What's on Your Plate? And he covers the world, he goes around the world to look at various potential solutions for how we will feed. 3 billion more people on the planet Earth by mid-century. Now, one of the things that you talked about in the film, Valentin, was hybrid seeds. And I'd love for you to help us understand what hybrid seeds are and what their advantages and disadvantages are. Well, the the, the advantage is quite clear. They they have been developing with this kind of uh, new type of seeds uh, uh, really good yields. So the yields are rising. The disadvantages in uh, the farmer, when he buys, he has to buy this uh, 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 from uh, uh, a corporation and he cannot use it the second year. He usually had uh, seeds that he reproduced. He took some part of the, the harvest, put it away for the next year to have seeds. Now this is not any more possible because the hybrid seeds go, go almost unfertile for the second year, so he has to buy seeds every year from new. Uh, good for the corporation because um, then they have money um, every year. And uh, on top of that, the hybrid seeds usually need uh, uh, fertilizers and uh, and pesticides being produced by the same big agri agro business companies. So this is kind of the agribusiness version of single-use disposable items. I, you know, it, we talk about when we talk about waste management and and solid waste management, recycling, and and going to zero waste on Go Green Radio. You know, we talk about the impact that single-use packaging, for instance, has on our culture and how that definitely creates a revenue stream for the companies that create them, but creates environmental problems and and a dependence on those items uh, on the part of consumers. And it sounds like this is kind of the equivalent to that in agribusiness. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, some uh, some people um, uh, uh, go beyond that and say it's, it's not just um, uh, that you throw away value, let's say in this case, uh, you th- also uh, create dependency. The farmer needs to go uh, and, and, and take money, and which is uh, in, uh, in most cases uh, fine because then he has a better yield so he can earn more money. Uh, just in the case of uh, a bad harvest, uh, um, this is very different when we look in our country a farmer would go to a to a bank and have have a 
credit and lend some money and then, uh, okay, next year it will be better again. But when a farmer in India is going to a local bank, they laugh at him. He, he doesn't even have a bank account. No bank wants to work with smallholders there. What The only thing he can do when he needs money for seeds and doesn't have any, he, has, he can go to local money lenders that are uh, asking interest rates you, you cannot imagine that it's it's 10% per month they are asking oh, as an interest gosh. rate so uh, and this is it would not be allowed neither in the US nor in Germany where I live but it's uh, it's in India it's possible they they do this with the small farmers and they this is one of the reasons actually why there are so many farmer suicides because they are indebted in an extent they will never be able to pay back. Oh, that's terrible. And we have heard, you know, quite a few stories of these tragic farmer suicides, not just in India, but in other places as well. But your film, you, you traveled to India and you showed farmers there who are going back to native seeds because they're more resilient than some of the hybrids in the face of some of the climate change realities that they're already facing, like floods, tsunamis, and cyclones. I'd love for you to talk to us and share with our listeners about what you saw and what you learned in India. Yeah, this was kind of interesting, really, because we we uh, we came to Odisha, which is one of the the original place where rice is coming from. Uh, but there was a big uh, cyclone and everything was flooded and we thought we cannot even reach the village. But uh, just two days before uh, we we came in, uh, the floods uh, withdrew and uh, uh, streets were uh, at least partly open again. And uh, when we got to the farms, it was, it was incredible to see the fields because it was like uh, parts of the fields uh, were like brown and and destroyed and devastated and a sharp line and we saw the next field is green what happened so the the, the destroyed fields were uh, corporate seeds the hybrid seeds that are not adapted to uh, this uh, climatic conditions and the, the green fields that were still uh, uh, perfect uh, uh, were native seeds that uh, they have been uh, uh, created by the farmers uh, for millenniums they they are adapted to the climate there and their flood is nothing special some days below the water these plants can survive it uh, the, the 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 high yield plants of the corporations they don't Interesting. Now, the, the film also takes us underground with some fascinating footage of underground mining for mineral fertilizer. And, you know, this this was something I'd never seen before, didn't know much about. Help us understand the role that both mineral and synthetic fertilizers play in modern agriculture. Well, there is, uh, we, we have an agriculture, um, at least when beyond the organic agriculture, the, the, the conventional or, or normal agriculture uh, is, uh, is addicted to fertilizer. They, 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 they cannot almost, uh, they, they, if they don't have fertilizers, they, their yields are dropping. Uh, one reason is that the more fertilizers you put on a soil, the less the natural Fertility is the, the 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 life in the in the soil is disappearing. This this figure ten billion you can consider it uh, as the figure of the of the human population uh, in the twenty first century. But it's also the figure of one cubic meter of 
good soil with a lot of humus. This is the number of, of, of microorganisms living in this one cubic meter, an incredible mm -hmm. number, 10 billion. Mm -hmm. And we don't know a lot about it. And the more fertilizers we put on this soil, the less of these uh, small animals will survive and, and create humus and fertility. Well, and in terms of uh, you know the artificial fertilizers that we're using, can we continue producing them forever? I mean, is this an infinite source of, of fertilization or is there a, an upper limit of what we can produce? Well, theoretically, uh, the, the nitrogen fertilizers are uh, being created from the nitrogen in our atmosphere. Uh, there is 80% of the atmosphere, we, we, of the air we breathe is, uh, is nitrogen. So theoretically, it is uh, endless. Um, but uh, to, to make it, to, 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 to produce it, we need a lot of fossil energy. And uh, we know that this is ending, but before it's ending, we will have a problem with climate change. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it, this is one problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's very energy intense. And uh, but the, the other fertilizers are uh, maybe more critical. Uh, the min mineral fertilizers. We we went to a a, a mine of of Kali. There is also a, an, another um, mineral called phosphorus, and the plant to grow needs all of these uh, minerals. If one is lacking, they cannot grow. So uh, what happens with the minerals? Uh, the the mines are running out. Of the Kali by the by the turn to the next to the twenty second century, uh, phosphorus most probably already by the end of this century, and even before that, the the last uh, uh, phosphorus mines are more and more polluted with uh, toxic chemicals like cadmium. And uranium, so uh, this is just natural, but uh, we we cannot easily use it. So we will have to think about other sources of fertilizers. We cannot use these mineral and artificial fertilizers forever. Well, and that begs the question: Is anyone thinking about what's next in terms of fer fertilizer? I have not seen any, you know, any documentaries, any books, any articles about. Next generation. What, wait, wait, uh, uh, wait, wait uh, to see our next film. Uh, ah. uh, it will be. We will. We're just about to pitch it, and it's uh, in, in. It's not even in production, but uh, the title might lead you where we're going. It's called Shit Happens. And there is pioneers. <laughs> there's pioneers also in the U.S. really working on that. So uh, we have Good. to we have to think about bringing our feces to the fields again. Uh, it's wow. it's technically it's possible. It's but it's yeah it's it's still not uh, in the head of people. Well, that's exciting. That's an exciting teaser, Valentina. We'll look for that next film. <laughs> now, you, you interviewed a farmer in Germany who talked about the inefficiency of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. And he said that actually a good deal of the fertilizer isn't even delivered to the plants, but it ends up in the groundwater. Talk to us about why that is significant. Not all of our Go Green radio listeners will immediately understand why that's a big deal. Yeah, unfortunately, this is uh, the when you have this fertilizer, some of it uh, evaporates into the atmosphere uh, and is heating up the planet. It's it's really a big portion of climate change is coming from the fertilizers on the field, and uh, some of it is going to the groundwater, 
or to the rivers. And uh, in the groundwaters, it's, uh, it's creating uh, um, a toxic nitrates. Uh, so if you have a, a level which is too high, you cannot drink this water. Uh, first of all, babies are affected uh, and, and later on also adults. And those, uh, those parts of the, of the nitrogen fertilizer that are uh, in, in the rivers and going to a lake or to the sea are polluting uh, the environment to an extent that we, we couldn't imagine uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, when, uh, but these quantities add and add and add uh, every year. And we have uh, parts of our, of our um, oceans that are oxygen-free uh, below 10 or 20 meters. So in the, in the depth uh, in the Baltic seas uh, in Europe, really, there is no life anymore below 10 meters. The oh. Gulf of Mexico is also uh, a very difficult uh, situation because there is lots and lots of, of, of fertilizers arriving from mm -hmm. by the Mississippi and other rivers. So this, you know what this is yeah. crazy about that is that you know, there was so much energy put into creating those fertilizers and then there's all this waste. Um, it, it's just... It's an insane loop. It's really hard to grasp how that could possibly uh, be efficient or profitable, but evidently it is, and it's something we need to think about. But all that waste is only causing harm to human beings and to other life forms. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we, have, when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Valentine. So please don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Valentin Thurn, and he is a filmmaker in Germany who has put out a film that I'd really love for you all to see. It's called 10 Billion What's on your plate? And if you Google it, you'll see that there are a number of different ways that you can view the film. And um, I'll tell you, you know, I've been doing Go Green Radio for almost 10 years now. We've talked about food issues and how to be, uh, how to make choices that are greener, more eco-friendly, more uh, mindful of social justice issues and what we can do, choices we can make. But this film took that to a new level for me. I felt really challenged and and I learned so much and I really want you all to check out his film. It's called 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate? Before we took a break, we were talking about the role that synthetic fertilizers play in modern agriculture and the fact that, you know, given the current means of production, we can't keep creating these synthetic fertilizers infinitum. Uh, we need to find alternatives. And, and we know that organic farms, um, you know, they do not use these fertilizers. But Valentina, a question for you is, do these organic farms produce the same yields as the conventional farms that are currently using synthetic fertilizers? No, they don't. They, they. You're right. They, they produce uh, less harm uh, to the environment. Uh, they, they really, uh, the, the, the way they are uh, putting uh, uh, animal manure, for example, on the fields is less uh, harmful for the groundwaters, for instance. But they also have, on average, like 25% less yield than the other farmers. But that's not the question when you uh, ask about how to feed the world. And when you ask about how to feed the world, you have to look on the developing countries where it's not about organic and conventional farming. It's about smallholders and big uh, agricultural uh, big farms. Uh, um, this is, the, con- the, this is the, the conflict they have there. And the interesting thing is the smallholders Although they they produce with uh, often they don't have money for the synthetic fertilizers, they but they always have better yields than the big farms. Why is it like that? It's it sounds contradictory, but it's uh, the, the interesting thing is with their workforce they have uh, an enormous amount of workforce. They can always have uh, a better yield. They are producing. Um, for instance, on one field in three different layers, uh, three different harvests uh, in the same time. You only can do that manually. You cannot do that with, with, uh, with machines. Uh, so they take out of the, the limited amount of agricultural surface, they take out more uh, 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 nutrients. And yeah, I think this is very important to know and this is also the reason why our organic farmers uh, they cannot do that they are living in a high wage country they they need a mechanization as well so that's why they produce less if they would have enough workforce they could do better that's interesting that's interesting you know the film shows us poultry production in india which is basically a a pretty new cultural phenomenon because for a long time, most of the population in India were vegetarian. This is changing. Talk to us about the environmental impact of the increased meat consumption from factory farms in India. Well, yeah, of course, uh, 
this uh, an average Indian has like uh, 20 times less of environmental footprint like an average American. So uh, you can imagine the moment he starts eating meat, this will change because uh, to produce meat, in, in average, you need like three to 10 kilos of feed. So uh, you have to grow this feed instead of uh, people eating the grains directly. Um, you, you, you have more impact uh, on, on, on the environment. Our, our agriculture is, is uh, as we said, very energy intensive now. So to have the fertilizers to grow this feed, this is all uh, heating up the planet. So, um, yeah, this is, this is, it's okay because they, they still eat uh, compared to uh, to an average American, they still eat uh, uh, 20 times less meat. But uh, the moment uh, and and what we we have no no uh, no reason to tell them uh, please uh, don't eat more meat. But uh, they are like already now they are 1.2 billion. So this is uh, and they will pass the Chinese in a few years being the biggest. Uh, country or the, the the country with the the most population on this planet. So uh, the moment they are um, uh, they were vegetarians to to a big extent, and the moment they start now to eat meat, this will change also their their environmental impact. Well, and and it was so interesting the connection that you made between the fact that global meat consumption is on the rise and the need then for animal feed and. And the fact that this is a global situation, it's not as if, you know, if there's a lot of factory farms that are creating chickens in India, that all of the feed for those chickens is necessarily grown in India. It might be a lot of it, but but there's a global phenomenon to this. And I'd like for you to explain that to our listeners, because that was a real aha moment when I watched in your film the connection between global meat consumption the need for all that animal feed and what that's doing to arable land and and workers around the globe. Talk to us about that. Actually, you're right. The there's there's Indian farms, uh, but also Chinese or, or Arab farms, and in Africa, especially uh, with a purpose to grow feed. And uh, this is an enormous amount. One third of the world's grain harvest is now being used to feed animals, and it's uh, it's it's really getting more and more. And uh, this means uh, that, on the other hand, the parts of the grain harvest that are directly being consumed by humans getting more and more expensive. So our meat consumption has a direct uh, connection to hunger because the the moment. Uh, Food is getting more expensive. People ca- cannot afford it. So, yeah, they, this this is a long-term uh, a development uh, where um, w- which makes it more difficult uh, to 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 feed uh, uh, ten billion on this planet. When we eat as much meat or more meat than we, we eat now, it will get more difficult. Well, and and when we say that one-third of the grain is going to feed animals, it's not like this is just the natural reproductive cycle of these animals. These are animals that are being raised, that are that are born simply to become food. And if we didn't eat as much meat, there wouldn't be as many animals to feed. It's not like, 
you know, yep. we're feeding animals at a, at a rescue shelter. That's not what we're talking about. Um, the film had a really poignant section that I will not soon forget, if ever. You showed workers in Africa raising soy for animal feed that's bound for Western factory farms. And I'd like for you to describe what our viewers, what our listeners will view if they become your viewers, which I hope they will, and check out your film. What will they see in this scene? And what was going through your mind as you were filming this? <laughs> well, they will see an, an, an American entrepreneur um, uh, venturing in, the, uh, in, in Africa where he's um, we're very proud of uh, having created uh, a, a big, huge soybean farm in the middle of the jungle. And um, the, the thing is that, well, Africa is not empty of, of humans. Uh, when you start a big soybean farm, uh, there is always land conflicts. That means in the end, soybeans are used as animal feed somewhere in Europe, in America, in China. When you eat meat, uh, the probability that a part of it, uh, you have a part of responsibility that somewhere else in Africa, uh, smallholders are being driven off their land is quite big. So meat has this unfortunate uh, connection more and more. The, the feed for the animals has been, in former times, the, the farmers grew it themselves or it has been grown somewhere in the regional market. But now more and more, they buy it on the international markets. And uh, it comes from very poor countries uh, in South Asia and, and more and more in, in, in Latin America and more and more in Africa, uh, where uh, you have a lot of smallholders that, that uh, um, well, they're in the middle of these big fields. They wanna, they wanna, uh, they wanna use. So they, they, it's easy there to to drive them off their land because they have no land titles usually in most countries. And even for those farmers who are not directly concerned, they take away their water. So these big farms are really a, a bad news for everybody living in this region. Well, and it was pretty clear from the the folks that were out working in the field that they were probably not eating any of the meat, getting any of the protein oh, that <laughs> was coming from that, that it would be fed, you know, to the people consuming the meat that uh, was fed by the soy that they were that they were farming, and and it was really hard to. To rest, you know, and just let my mind uh, forget that. I won't. It was very poignant. Now, you also visited a plant factory in Japan. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, STEM, STEM, you know, science is definitely going to save us. It's going to save our bacon, literally, in the 21st century. But um, I'm not so sure that we can science our way out of all of the issues that we're talking about now in terms of feeding 10 billion people. But talk to us about this method of food production and how it might impact at least some of the 10 billion people we need to feed. Well, this is, um, it's interesting to see how they are growing salad in a, in a, in a building with, without any, any windows. So it's, it's indoor, uh, it's 21 stories uh, of salad and uh, they uh, no soil. They have just been uh, liquid uh, fertilizers and yeah, I would I would not say this is not a solution for those countries where they thrive like 
uh, Japan, where the, 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 the amount of agricultural land is, is really limited, or China, where the surroundings of, of the big cities are so much polluted that people actually pay more to get these salads from indoor farming. Uh, and maybe it also might be a solution for for the 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 Arab world where the, they have a problem uh, uh, of, of of dry and hot climates. So or it, it I, I would say uh, for limited uh, uh, purposes, this might be a technique that helps. But to feed the 10 billion, uh, I'm sorry, uh, this is not relative. Uh, for South Asia or Africa, uh, because you need energy, you need capital, so and and they don't have they have enough sun and soil. They they don't need this, and they they cannot afford it. So it's it's not a solution. I'm sorry. Well, and I think that's an important point to remember. These energy intensive innovations, uh, you know, may not be applicable in areas where there simply isn't the energy infrastructure. And so we have to remember that. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you have joined us today and our guest, Valentin Chern, who is a filmmaker. And I'm really excited to recommend his brand new film called 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate? It's important. And I challenge each of you to Google it, find an easy way to view it. There's so many different ways, uh, iTunes, Netflix, etc. Just Google 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate? And you'll find a way to view his film. Now, you did cover a really interesting segment in your film about 
meat that's produced in a lab. Um, and I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that, Valentine, and how this product may or may not impact future human supply, food supply. Um, is this going to be helpful for people in poor countries? Uh, you know, talk to us about this issue. Well, they, they're not uh, really ready to, to put this on the market, but they will soon be. And uh, they, uh, because now it's still quite expensive to produce this meat. But they say, and I believe them, uh, they will need way less energy, water, uh, and other resources to produce this meat compared to factory farming, to these big uh, animal lots uh, we have now in indus- industrial farming. It is not better than uh, having uh, a cows or lamb or whatever on the on the uh, on, on the on the fields uh, grazing. So uh, yeah, so this the environmental uh, effect is uh, uh, is ambiguous, but. Um, this only applies for the the rich countries. We we have already uh, a kind of meat production that is so bad that this is progress for for the poorer countries, for the developing world. It's 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 even impossible for them in the next decades even to think about it. So much capital, so much energy to they they would need to produce this lab meat, and uh, besides of that, there is a lot a big portion of this planet is is can only be used uh, for 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 grazing animals because it's too dry or too cold. So let's stick there with animal husbandry. They 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 own they they have no other mean. Mm-hmm. And talk to us about that. You know, your your film shows a couple of different examples of of really um, exceptionally efficient animal husbandry and organic farming in conjunction. Talk to us about that option. How does it work? What advantages does it have over conventional food production? Talk to us about that. Well, yeah, if you have, um, uh, I mean, I would say if you eat less meat, this is always uh, a, a, a good thing uh, for 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 the planet uh, because we definitely eat too much. It's also a good thing for our health, by the way. But uh, uh, I'm not a vegetarian myself, but uh, I, I reduced my meat consumption because of that. In the same time, I know that there is uh, meat being produced on, on Greenland's uh, that would otherwise disappear. So um, um, it's 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 not bad to have uh, a meat production that is is in, in environmentally friendly. Uh, the 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 various parts of of our of our countries, high in the mountains, for instance, or, or the meadows on the boards of the river that that where you can't do other agricultural or you would cause harm. So it's good to have this in the same time with other agriculture and it's it's not about black and white uh, no more meat or or it's it's about a, a balance that is is uh, the the the, ma- the main problem is that if you're a farmer and you you produce your meat uh, ecologically you're not really uh, you, you just get the same prices than your neighbor that is producing uh, uh, that is polluting the environment so we we should really think about our price system to help those farmers who who have uh, who help our environment 
You know, it's interesting that you talk about the financing and prices for various things because when we go into the supermarket, there's beef next to beef. There's chicken next to chicken or, or grain products next to grain products. And oftentimes the ones that are uh, more environmentally responsible or even healthier cost much more. Is there another way that agriculture could be financed so that the the most beneficial products um, are the the ones that we can afford, the ones that consumers can prefer. Well, I know a perfect system where you can get good food without paying uh, much more or, or even uh, just the same amount and the usual uh, supermarket prices. Go to a CSA, uh, community-supported agriculture, where you don't need any uh, uh, any trader in between the farmer and the consumer, they, you just have a direct connection and you get your your veggies or your or milk or whatever you uh, you order directly from the farmer. Um, this is a very good system. It actually uh, originates in Eastern Asia where um, uh, it already exists since about 40 years and is, has has been growing really big. Uh, in, in, in South Korea, there is one uh, CSA with 1.5 million members, so it can really grow big. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, one that's, that's a very big CSA. And I know we have them in the United States, and they're growing. There's quite a, a new push towards urban agriculture as well. You featured a former NBA basketball star who's doing this in Milwaukee. Talk to us a little bit about Will Allen and what he's doing. Well, uh, well, Alan is is really doing uh, an important job because he created his farm in a, in a food desert, as he says, like five mil, five miles in every direction. There is only fast food burgers and so on. There is no uh, no healthy food, and all the people living there, mostly uh, a lot of them are black, but mostly uh, really uh, uh, poor people. They um, they couldn't afford buying healthy food now they they can now they can it, i mean his farm is really a good example uh what what is needed and uh, i i would say uh this applies for for uh the us as well as for for the rest of the world um we we need more local farms that that are where, where consumers and farmers are in a direct connection. I can tell you why because I don't. I don't really believe that uh, relying on the world market is something that will lead to more uh, security. Of course, there is things um, like cafe or um, whatever that, due to climate conditions, uh, do not grow in our country. So, and there is nothing uh, that is. Uh, I wouldn't argue against uh, importing these items, but when it comes to the staple food, to the, the things we eat on an everyday basis, I think uh, we we should look that this is produced locally because in a case uh, in the case of uh, a different uh, difficult situations, a, a war or or uh, 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 political tensions, this is the only the only security we have to feed our people is mm -hmm. that we produce these staple foods locally. 
Well, and and you said a mouthful there that really is um, important. Although, uh, you know, there are some countries that are so isolated and and have such difficult climate conditions that they need our help. But you said something so powerful towards the end of your film that will stick with me forever. You said, "I am responsible for the source of my food," and I I just think that's so profound because some people can't make those choices. You know, they're they're in impoverished situations. But in the West, we can make that choice. And I'd like for you to talk about a few changes we could make to our eating habits to help create a world where fewer or maybe no people suffer from food insecurity. It, it, it would be uh, it would be contradictory if we would uh, try to feed those people that are starving. They are able to feed themselves. We just have to to leave them the markets, not to destroy their 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 uh, agricultural s- structure by by importing the industrialized system we have. Uh, so uh, this is the way. If we go and look for a healthy system in our country, in, in our regions, uh, we are supporting uh, the ones that starve more than by sending uh, a food there. The, the, the dumping our surpluses is even is even uh, bad because it destroys the local agriculture in Africa or wherever we, we, we send our our help. The so-called help is destroying local agriculture. They they have always had the 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 ability to feed themselves, and we we need to strengthen that instead of dumping our surpluses. Interesting. You raised some amazing points, and I hope that all of our listeners will take a look at your film, 10 Billion, What's on Your Plate? Well, thank you, Valentine, for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.